what is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation? That this is the right place. Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today, I will interview Daniel Prohaski with a diverse background in architecture, civil and aerospace engineering. We will talk about his vision for the future of cities, his role as an advisor for sustainable resource management, his approach to the technology as a tool, and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Daniel Prohaski is an architectural engineer and roboticist passionate about translating research towards industry adaptation in Australia, particularly in the building, design and construction industry. He is the CEO and co-founder of CurveCrete, an advanced manufacturer and robotics development company with a focus on elegant low-carbon construction. He is also the founding lecturer in architectural engineering at Swinburne University and was Swinburne's 2019 Design Faculty Innovation Fellow to further develop his innovative advanced manufacturing venture CurveCrete. Daniel represents CurveCrete as a founding member of the New South Wales Government's MECLA, Materials Embodied Carbon Leadership Alliance program, on a mission to incentivize the use of low-carbon material use in construction to accelerate the implementation of solutions to the climate crisis. He has deep industry knowledge in applied research outcomes for multidisciplinary engineering firms, in particular Arup and Auracon, and works across institutions and innovation precincts, bringing teams together to solve some of the most pressing challenges in the building and construction industry. His focus is on the exploitation of advanced manufacturing and automation techniques towards more resourceful methods of construction, and the utilization of higher levels of computational integration and interoperability to achieve the former in orchestration with all environmental, operational, and construction factors. Daniel has his sights set on taking CurveCrete's innovative process and product much further to construction projects not just on Earth, but on the Moon, Mars, and beyond. And with that, Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Let's start with the easiest question. What does the future of cities mean to you? To me personally, I, I think it the most amount of meaning that I get from it is really imagining what it could be, how it could be better, how it could be more stimulated uh, by the places that we live, not just necessarily cities, but cities that are within that, that goal or that vision. Yeah. We're quite an optimist when, when it comes to thinking about the future in general, but um, yeah, when it comes to cities, like, okay, like what could we build that's really exciting to, to be around and be within and to work and play with, with other people um, in a really, really fun way. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Maybe that, <laughs> um, without, without snowballing too quickly <laughs> into everything, I'll, I'll let you ask more questions. <laughs> to, to be honest, I love your snowboard. So please don't <laughs> do that to yourself. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm already restraining myself. <laughs> Please don't do yeah. that. Um, okay. We have time and and uh, we have the opportunity to talk about this. How is your opportun- uh, sorry, optimism present uh, and how how does it manifest, manifest itself, basically? Uh, yeah, seeing all of the capabilities of, of people grow and, and the enthusiasm to grow in, in terms of what technology can be applied now, today. Uh, to help us and it's not a technologically central thing or driven thing it's just mm-hmm. that the opportunity now uh, that we have with all of the 
technological things that are available, cheaper price and the knowledge that we have around them that quite open and distributed. Everyone has much more capability to apply things. So, uh, for instance, um, yeah, at a high level, without getting too specific out, <laughs> thinking about you know how the digital and the physical worlds interact, and and uh, these technologies like augmented reality, how it gives more meaning to uh, physical things in a digital way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite exciting and and what sort of interactions that can have especially in the world where it has become more virtual because of certain mm-hmm. pandemics and things <laughs> um, you know th- this overlay of digital and physical is becoming more prominent and allowing us to still function as a society which um, actually kind of you know feeds into that optimism that doesn't matter what happens, we can still function <laughs> um, in some way and still progress in some way. Yeah, that, that gives me quite a bit of optimism. But yeah, like uh, personal capabilities and you know, friends and colleagues of mine that have the ability to build the future around us, that, that's a really exciting one. Using that new technology is, yeah, really, really exciting. So yeah, I should try and simplify it, but Within the commercial industry, like everyone really wants to try out new things um, on an individual level. But then when it comes to the organization level or institution level, it's very difficult to navigate and cut through and innovate and implement some of these new um, things that could improve our cities in some way. So the optimism comes from individuals or people that, that are really pushing I'm talking to them a lot and we've got this network that's growing and it's starting now I can see a shift slowly shifting towards things being implemented a bit more in terms of applying you know methods of automating uh, more mundane processes of design for instance if you mm-hmm. want to get specific like you know trying to get an example that's not super specific so it, <laughs> but you know just like streamlining documentation processes with the company CurveCrete, like we, we're um, uh, cutting through that by just going straight from design to production, you know, just with a 3D slash 4D model um, mm-hmm. and using integrated information within that model mm-hmm. uh, in order to fabricate it directly with robotic systems. So, you know, that, that documentation phase is, is sliced, like it, it's reduced significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a lot of the other design consultancies are like trying to do that mm. <laughs> more and, and working with fabricators closely, more closely. So you can build more exciting things um, more effectively, which, which would eventually shape our city at scale. Mm-hmm. So that, that's one example. Mm. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, so in your understanding, technology is just a tool, not the aim of the mm-hmm. evolution. Development. Yeah, mm. it's, um, I would go one, maybe one step further. I don't know. It's kind of the natural progression of things like, because uh, yeah, the technology always becomes the tool. Yeah. You could make an argument in a different way. Uh, for like social media and that sort of thing, but I don't want to get into that rabbit hole. It's okay. like, it's is technology driving us in a social way, probably. But um, I think it really works in the opposite direction, especially when it comes to cities, because mm-hmm. it, it's the people that come up with the idea first and then 
um, technology follows because yeah, the technology that survives in the building construction industry is the one that's effective at implementing those ideas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's, it really is a design-driven thing when it comes to new processes or techniques because there's so much regulatory tape that you have to go through in order to get the technology to be used. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my pers- perspective anyway when it, when it <laughs> comes to robotic systems and, and that sort of thing. Um, it does happen in a different way where, say, if you had a particular, I guess you could almost call it a monopoly on um, you know, computer-aided design tools um, with Autodesk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not, not allowed to say it's a monopoly, I guess. But, um, but uh, you know, majority of the construction industry is, is using Autodesk products and mm-hmm. um, there hasn't been that much innovation in what, they're doing in terms of interoperability and all that sort of stuff uh, mm. for a while. Yeah, that's that really hinders innovation mm. or when it comes to the building construction industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that sort of technology sort of almost like kind of slowing it down in a way. It is a driver, but not, not in the sense that you would expect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that way, you just get a whole lot of frustrated people <laughs> in institutions and organizations. So mm-hmm. then eventually something changes, you know? Mm-hmm. So then the people are driving the process again, but mm-hmm. yeah, both, both are quite integral, but yeah, the technology doesn't, definitely doesn't drive it. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what are the three biggest concerns for the future of cities? Concerns for the future of cities. Yeah, I can think of a lot of them. <laughs> Did you say three? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can do more if you have more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. These might not be the top three, but I'll just pick three. So I think one that's really interesting to talk about is pollution mm. um, in the city. Pollution from cars mainly. Yeah, some industrial processes that are like on the ring of cities, like mm-hmm. that are in those industrial zones that are not that far from a city, from the CBD of the city. Anyway. You know, they, these sort of considerations, I feel like they're very underrated in terms of risk level, mm. like extremely underrated because they don't seem like an immediate threat or, or risk, but it has a huge effect over a long period of time uh, with, you know, Increase the cancer, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, with um, respiratory disease and, and that sort of thing. So I feel like it's like a really underrated risk that is this big thing that we have the ability to solve over the next couple of decades mm. within cities. Electrification of transport mm-hmm. and higher dependence on shared transport systems, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily just public transport, but just shared or more people on bikes and walking. Mm-hmm. So that that's one out of three. <laughs> hmm. I guess I was kind of mapping it specifically from the experience of Melbourne, mm-hmm. where you've got quite dense living you know, situations where some buildings have the highest density even in the world in terms of how many people are living within apartments that are very small. And that sort of thing is a big issue that I think recently there was a revision in the planning regs that 
increase the minimum apartment size, mm. but there are still existing very small apartments. And I think this is a big issue around the world. And, you know, you could obviously put it under the banner of densification and, and that big issue of densification and how you maintain a high standard of living, regardless mm. of that pressure to densify. Like, you know, the big picture of things, there's always this push and pull from densification versus distributed systems. And mm. I feel like the direction that we're going with a lot of things is distributed. You think of um, healthcare systems, distributed health, um, you know, in-home healthcare, for instance, like microfluidic and medical device innovation to allow home care of more sophisticated processes that are required and that are usually required in a, a big medical facility that's central can be more distributed now. And the push and pull there is like, yeah, that, that's just one essential service, but there's other essential services that the services that can be more distributed because of new innovations. But then you have this issue of urban sprawl where you've got a really distributed city physically. There's less pressure to densify and go central, which makes for a more inefficient city. So like you know, the denser you are, the more efficient it can be because you have to, you can travel less, all the services are local, but um, if it's more distributed, then it's a less energy efficient mm-hmm. city. But then <laughs> all that is dependent on the environment of the city as well, like the the weather system is really mm. dependent on cooling and urban heat island effect is sort of driving that um, push and pull as well. Anyway, it's, yeah, that issue of, of densification is going to be a bigger issue. The way that I look at it, actually, um, I don't know if this is part of the question, but the, my, my approach to thinking about densification in cities is really like what what's our global population likely to level out at? Mm-hmm. And some predict around about the sort of nine to eleven billion mm-hmm. mark by like twenty one hundred. Mm-hmm. So you can sort of reverse engineer the maths behind mm-hmm. that and see what sort of density we actually, you know, it is like works with that with that mm-hmm. population, and then look at how livable, like what what's quality of life at that density. If you really wanted to, you could, you know, you, you could, you can design that, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can use that as, uh, as the input for, for how to yeah, approach that, that densification issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then the third one, it's definitely like a resource one there that needs mm. to be addressed. So yeah, resource in terms of how you feed people, energy, energy production, generation and use. You know, all, all the things in terms of resources is pretty general, but uh, I think I'll probably address more of the resource issue in later questions. So I won't okay. drag that on just now. Okay. <laughs> then what are the three biggest opportunities for the future of cities? There you go. Okay. <laughs> I'm address it there. <laughs> so, Good. yeah. So the first one, I'll go back to the pollution thing, like electrification. That's a quick <laughs> answer. So the Insights there is like something that really enables electrification is autonomous driving. 
The famous example, of course, is Tesla. The reason why their business model works is because they don't, they're not just electrifying, they're also automating mm-hmm. uh, through um, driverless vehicles, networked vehicles. It's a computer on wheels. It's not a car. Mm-hmm. You know, the business model is not a service-based model in it will be later, but uh, the you know, service base in terms of like, you know, the automotive industry is really based around a service of maintaining your vehicle, cars that, um, oh, sorry, maintaining vehicle and finance. So a lot of automakers are, are really financial institutions and that are learning, lending you money to buy their vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes their vehicles are sold at a loss but because of the financial facility uh, that they're lending you money, they actually make money through the interest, not through selling the car. <laughs> um, if you bought it with cash, they, would, they might lose money. Mm-hmm. And then maintaining the vehicle, there's this whole distributed network of you know, mechanics, blah, 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 um, where, and dealerships as well when they sell the car. You still have to change your tires on an electric vehicle. There's couple of fluids that you top up and that sort of thing, but the maintenance for braking systems, for uh, the engine itself, for any oil changes all disappears. So the maintenance is so much less. Yeah, so actually selling electric vehicles, yeah, it, it sort of kills off that, that service industry, not going with the, the financial route. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking too much into it now. <laughs> uh, but put put simply, is like you know, once you sell the car, there's there's no ties back to the new electrical vehicle automaker, other than like the over the updates and, and that sort of thing, which actually sort of add value to your car rather than depreciate your your vehicle. So it becomes like not a depreciating asset, actually. It potentially increases in value, and then in the future, when it, uh, the car becomes an autonomous vehicle, then it's a revenue generator. So it's completely flipped the the model around owning a vehicle. Mm-hmm. It will, and really cheap to run, like cheaper than petrol. So again, it's like the natural progression of things. It's like electric vehicles have become you know, cheaper to buy, and internal combustion engines engine cars, ICE vehicles, um, and then they'll become revenue generators as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess in, in the future, like Tesla will, will create some sort of like Tesla network that will be the pseudo sort of Uber service. That's why it's like, yeah, actually it will become like a service-based industry again, like a service-based business model, but there'd be a whole fleet of autonomous vehicles that are just generating revenue for the company. Mm-hmm. And I doubt they would bother even selling cars anymore unless it meant that it would further accelerate the transition to electrification of, of vehicles mm-hmm. for a sustainable energy consumption. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that um, is one example. There's other automakers that are transitioning to electric as well because they've seen this or you know, they probably had it in there. 10-year business plan because everyone knows about electric vehicles since cars existed because that was the first one. (laughs) Yes. Uh, (laughs) 
in the early 1900s or whatever it was. So <laughs> the petrol killed it. Yeah, we'll solve that one. But I feel like there's not much much focus on it, and there's not much incentivization to transition to electrification. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely not enough at all here. It's it needs to be, yeah, seen as a more important issue, because yeah, the like I said in problems, yeah, the reason why maybe a lot of people don't go to the city. Just because you don't really get fresh air there unless you're like maybe in the park. Mm-hmm. If you want to build a really exciting city to be within and one where everyone just really wants to go there to have a good time, <laughs> and then uh, should probably clean up. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And then uh, what's the second one uh, is about densification. So you said there are opportunities, right? Yes. Yeah. So I guess. This is a really challenging one because, I mean, we, we do have the opportunity now that we have for a long time to, to really update how we plan our know, cities. And, yeah, this is a tricky one. I don't know how to solve this because there's so much, yeah, it's such a complex issue. Mm-hmm. You mean densification? Density? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, densification in, in general, like it's such a complex problem. But, yeah, I, I think the opportunities really lie in how you can actually simulate what it looks like. Mm. But there's so many other factors around how people interact and, yeah. Simulate, you mean during the design process? So like a virtual simulation and modeling how the different pedestrians are moving through the area, for example? Yeah, it's, it's, it's something that we've been working on a little bit where we simulate basically all of the environmental factors that we possibly can on an increasing scale Wow! And, and understand how they all interact. The really challenging bit, though, I mean, that, that's kind of like the tools are available to do that. Um, you just have to um, streamline the process or integrate data. It's, you know, it's not, not too bad. Like it's, yeah, it's a lot of data, but you, you can do it. But the, the really challenging thing is thinking about what does that mean for people <laughs> um, and mapping that to a human experience of the city mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, how much space do they actually need to enjoy it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many things to consider there. Mm. You know, you have to really narrow it down. So if it's, um, yeah, it's really how we imagine the future city. Is it one that we live in and then experience outside of our home? Mm-hmm. Or is it one where we um, need to feel comfortable enough to live in the city and not be dependent too much on what is available as um, amenities outside of our home, whether it's within our building. Mm-hmm. Is it more of a model where you never leave your building, sort of thing, mm-hmm. um, unless it's something that you really have to go outside for? Or is it one where we just, you know, through the electrification of vehicle number one, you know, transport systems might be way more accessible and easy to, to move around. So then maybe less people live in the city and you go into the city to, to meet people from 
uh, places that are on the other side of the city <laughs> as a central point and as, as a hub of activity. Mm-hmm. So there's so many different like urban design models that you could build around those little assumptions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's a lot of opportunity there, I guess, to um, maybe create these sort of soft layers of the city, like, like, you know, virtualized densification, if you like. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's just a, yeah, just more of a thought mm-hmm. <laughs> than any sort of opportunity, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it is something that we could do. Like it was quite catchy to say like soft infrastructure, that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but it's really like you know, if we have these shared transport systems that we're using, you know, how they interact with one another can solve a lot of congestion issues and, and that sort of thing. Like, but that's all software driven, right? Mm-hmm. That's soft infrastructure. Yeah, if we say like because of the pandemic and how we yeah, work from home and work remotely, then, you know, once the transport systems are much more, uh, versatile and in, in moving around and figuring out who is where and you know if, if you wanted to meet physically you might be more likely to meet at more flexible locations around the city mm-hmm. uh, rather than always have a physical presence at a particular place and that influences you know that density question it's like well yeah you just get a lot lot more um yeah, uh, flexibility in, in where, where you move. And, uh, I'm trying to come up with a perfect answer. It's just not there. Like, <laughs> but then, yeah, there is no perfect a lot of, answer. A lot of, that's, that's right. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, just air some, some thoughts. <laughs> Good. That, yeah. that, that's what I want. <laughs> Great. Right. Um, uh, there was a third one, right? Um, yeah. So that that one I wanted to ramble on about a little bit because <laughs> okay. um, uh, in the manufacturing side of things that are influencing like what resources we use or you know, repurpose or yeah recycle reuse etc. Yeah, of raw materials in terms of resourcing those. You know that that's really big opportunity there because we've got something like. I think it's about three or four hundred million tons of flash in Australia just mm. um, stockpiled. A lot of that, the majority of that, can be used as building construction material that's um, you know possible to use in in different types of concrete, in particular like so lower carbon concretes called geopolymers. Mm-hmm. You know, using flash content along with um, slag, blast blast furnace slag, which is a uh, byproduct of steel manufacturing. Th- these sort of resources we can utilize, you know, to, to build the future city or mm-hmm. build more of our cities that become future cities. And yeah, there's a lot of uh, initiative that's happening in the construction industry currently. So I should mention here, Curvecrete and my, myself are um, sort of representing Curvecrete um, mm-hmm. for this advisory position that we're helping the New South Wales government to form a um, 
uh, Leaders Alliance called the uh, you know, Materials Embodied Carbon Leaders Alliance. It's all about incentivizing low carbon material use in construction and figuring out how to actually crack that for the construction industry. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. So it's with quite a few other industry partners, like literally all the big players in Australia are getting involved. Mm. Um, and if you are a big player and you're listening, you should sign up. Um, <laughs> all the way from raw material production up to the supply uh, demand and supply of um, you know buildings and infrastructure mm-hmm. uh, from the client and everything in between. So basically spending a lot of time, which is on trying to understand the entire system to some degree, but then inject myself into understanding the raw material supply end and then jumping over to the demand side mm-hmm. um, as well. So uh, looking at the, the two ends of the, the supply chain, I guess, of construction um, in general. That's so exciting. yeah. So it's a complex thing to unravel in the short time that we have. <laughs> <laughs> um, somehow the time has like escaped us <laughs> really quick. <laughs> That's fine. Maybe we will have around two. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, I'd really like to consolidate some of these thoughts a little bit better. But the, yeah, I think the really exciting thing about that, the opportunity there, especially with um, thinking about resources is, yeah, and specifically thinking about reducing embodied energy within the, you know, how you actually build mm-hmm. the future city is that, looking at circular economy, like you know, that mm. sort of process, mm-hmm. looking at how you could still utilize you know, waste products, uh, upcycle them, add value to them. Mm-hmm. So with, um, again, I use reference CurveCrete again. <laughs> the, the way that we do this is by utilizing the, the waste flash and slag, we create the low carbon concrete and... Uh, but, but we create something really beautiful with it, mm-hmm. which is a, a curved concrete that we form on our robotic system that doesn't create any waste in the process either. Mm-hmm. So we create these these really beautiful products out of the, the waste product. And um, in that way, we can get people excited about using mm-hmm. something that others consider waste. And technology kind of enables that in, in some way. Well, in yeah, almost all, all aspects. But <laughs> um, but the people that that are, that are driving the technology are really you know capable here in Australia and in Victoria to do that. Yeah, I feel like the the way that the industry is approaching this um, new low carbon future and zero waste future, or even negative waste future, mm. using waste products. There's a lot of opportunity there. You know, it ties back into the Victorian government in particular uh, looking at incentivizing manufacturing, the revival of manufacturing. Yeah, the opportunities there have arisen again where like we started in the conversation about technology, how it's really accessible. It's, it's cost effective now to build um, more automated systems to fabricate things mm-hmm. and manufacture things. Again, it's a bit of a natural progression more or less because we've got a lot of skills here mm-hmm. in design and automation, but 
and we used to have, or maybe it's still kind of, uh, I'll say we used to have like a really strong manufacturing industry. Mm-hmm. And I guess the natural progression of things is like, we start with manufacturing, like in a mechanical sense or mm. a skills-based sense, manual labor sense, because we've got access to lots of raw material. That's like, that was the step just above raw material supply. Mm-hmm. Maybe like the economics of it. Then the labor becomes more expensive because we're exporting more and we're getting more money in, becoming more educated. And I'm talking about Australia. And then I guess, and on a state level as well, it's quite relevant because then you get to a point where manufacturing is no longer desirable for people mm-hmm. to do as like a trade or something. Mm-hmm. Because people have become more intelligent, more educated. They want to do something like service-based mm-hmm. where they're consultant, designer, financial consultant. So it's more about service-based industries. And we're losing a lot of skill sets within manufacturing where it requires that manual labor or mechanical systems to operate the mechanical system. Mm-hmm. But then uh, there's this natural, natural progression back to manufacturing now where there's more automation. Mm-hmm. It's less about the skills of making and more about how to operate the machine to get the, the machine to make it or the robotic system to make it. Um, so you're designing the process and implementing the, the process of making rather than making it yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the, the next step up from there is the manufacturing system that manufactures the manufacturing system that mm-hmm. manufactures the product. <laughs> yeah. There, there's always human involved somewhere, but um, you know, there's less hands-on mm-hmm. things. So uh, then it flips back into the, the service based industry where it's like, well, we're just designing the, the manufacturing system, mm-hmm. implementing the robotic system to make the things that make the things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, then it, progresses into the design industry as well. Like you're designing, like if you look at like machine learning algorithms and that sort of thing, like you're mm-hmm. designing the system to design the system, mm-hmm. like to design the thing. There's these levels of abstraction where it's like, well, you've just you define the goal. Like, you know, I want to achieve this product or thing. And then you allow the system to simulate and create options and uh, comes up with the, the thing at the end. Uh, so, yeah, how that feeds back to resourcing, I can't remember. But <laughs> but as it relates to the manufacturing yeah, yeah. process, yeah, yeah, that definitely <laughs> relates. <laughs> exactly. What are the three biggest strengths for the future of cities? Uh, cool, strengths. Yeah, so this one I have to unpack a little bit in my mind um, okay. to get it right. Cause Does it help if I, I get- ask what do you mean by strength? Yeah, maybe define that. Uh, so it's a little bit. Yeah. No, no, no. Sorry, I'm I'm yeah. interested in your definition. Uh, my, oh, yeah, my yeah. definition. Oh, I'm interested <laughs> in yours. My definition of strength. Well, it's it's really like if I really had to specify it somehow, it'd be like resilience of life, not just humans, but um, mm. everything that lives in a city and the resilience of those organisms. Minus a few bacterial ones that are <laughs> annoying the shit out of everyone. Viral ones. <laughs> they can die. <laughs> the resilience of, you know, I guess humans and, and other 
biological systems that actually want life to live freely. So the strength of that, it's it's just a testament to how we just get on with things. I I, I feel like so there's massive underlying stress. Like I, I feel a little bit stressed in this like lockdown six. The other five didn't bother me really at all. I don't think, except for like maybe the very beginning of the first one, where it's like <laughs> trying to navigate how to teach remotely. Yeah, that was huge. That was massive stress, mm. but it sort of build up resilience now that we can operate virtually. And I think everyone's going to have that same answer. Um, so try and come up with others. But I mean, that's yeah. a huge one. Resilience uh, and adaptability. That's a huge one. Yeah, we've we've created that strength within us. It only existed because we had some sort of restriction in place. Mm. And speaking past tense, but it's really present, <laughs> uh, present restriction. But yeah, we're just getting on with it, which is great. So mm. that was pretty strong. Yeah, I guess go back to the other theme of the other questions. <laughs> yeah, we, I'll, I'll wrap up. All three in one. Let's just do one. Okay. Because <laughs> uh, you know, working virtually was pretty frustrating now, yeah, but we're still getting things done. So mm -hmm. everyone's still really willing to work together and everything and, and work through any sort of restraint that we have. So it's really cool. And you know, I think that you know, really relates to cities in a way because we, we always, I guess, not, not this one, but maybe the previous within Melbourne, like lockdown three or four, you got to a point where we don't really need to be there physically, mm -hmm. but now it's going full circle back to like the, the first lockdown where it's like, well, it's slightly different where it's like, is it always going to be like this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the first one we're like, okay, it just has to be virtual. But now it's like, we've still got hope that we go back physical, but mm -hmm. it just mm -hmm. keeps coming back. Yeah. <laughs> So, like, well, let's just, I don't want to, like, it feels like you're almost giving up um, in terms of, like, getting Aww. getting physical things happening, right? Mm -hmm. But you can still do things virtual, which is great. Um, so it's still resilient. But, yeah, there's only so many times where you, you try to, to plan something physical with, you know, uh, teaching your students or workshop or whatever, getting together with industry partners through projects, it's tricky. Yeah, everyone's still like willing to be tenacious and, and figure it out anyway. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a real strength of just people in general. Mm. Um, but cities definitely facilitate a lot of that and uh, become stronger through networking across multiple cities, mm. not, not just where you are. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, going back to the New South Wales government advisory stuff, you know, all that's based in Sydney more or less, but through the fact that everything's online, like they were reaching out to all the different cities across you know, all, the, all the states and territories across Australia. Everyone's super accessible that they sign in, they sign up awesome. and everyone just um, works together online. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely that resilience of us as humans being able to work virtually, of course. I'm sure everyone's going to say that as a strength, <laughs> but you know, we may as well just stick to that because um, 
yeah, it's a real big stress of everyone. So mm. may as well talk about it. Mm. Um, so you are not afraid of technology at all, basically. Ah, uh, that's a different. Is, is that the conclusion you get from that? Um, the conclusion I get that uh, you are more enthusiastic about technology, although yeah. you, are, you are now kind of tired of <laughs> using technology for uh, personal communication and personal meetings. I, I understand that, and that's, <laughs> that's out of question. Um, but you much more sound like enthusiastic about technology and what the, what people can achieve through or with technology. Yeah, I think it's a really enabling force. I think mm-hmm. we're really capable and you know at, at utilizing it as a tool. Yeah, definitely not afraid of technology itself. Mm-hmm. Definitely skeptical about you know uh, people that use technology in different ways that <laughs> uh, you know so it, uh, on it, it shouldn't be used. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it goes back to that thing. Like, you know, people drive what happens with technology right now. That may not be the case in the future when we have more sophisticated AI and that sort of thing. And that's intimidating for sure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we haven't gone down that rabbit hole. So, <laughs> so we won't go there at this stage much more optimistic than, than pessimistic about or, or skeptical so, mm. uh, about technology. But we're driving it. It's not not technology driving us. Mm, that's really but, good to so, hear. So I'm not I'm not afraid. No. Okay. Like you, you always have to be a skeptic. Mm, you have mm. to be your own number one skeptic. You, mm. know, uh, you always have to be questioning yourself. Why are you doing this? Why, you know, I'm, am I doing the right thing? You know? mm-hmm, am, I, mm-hmm. am I doing my best? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but you've, you've got no way of really knowing what other people think and you have your ability to communicate to them and back and understand mm-hmm. their motives and all that sort of stuff. So I'm always a skeptic. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean I don't trust people. I trust mm-hmm. a lot of people, but I love a lot of people. Work with some favorite people in my life are really special to me. But uh, it's, yeah, you have to remain a skeptic. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, technology, I'm not really afraid of that. It's yeah, something you can control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, at, at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Kind of, we will leave to the sound, <laughs> I think. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Thank you so much, Danielle, uh, for mm. coming on the podcast. I highly appreciate your answers. I always enjoy your train of thoughts. It's really, really mm-hmm. interesting. It's nice to, to try and think at a, a much broader level. Yeah, and it's a weird question, right? The future of um, cities, because maybe we don't have cities in the future or, or something like that, you know? It's, <laughs> um, I mean, it depends uh, on what do you call as a city. Um, yeah, how do you define it? You can't, because it's this massive organism of all these things, of life and technology where they meet is how we sort of framed it, I guess, in the conversation here. Yeah. And all the things to consider there. Yeah, no, I remain optimistic. I'm not that afraid of technology <laughs> uh, or people. <laughs> And uh, I think we've done really well to, to get through what is proving to be quite a tough time for everyone. Mm-hmm. And uh, cities play a huge part in that, reviving society after all this blows over is going to be a huge challenge, I think. Mm-hmm. Manufacturing play a big role in it resourcing that 
mm-hmm. play a big role. The economics around that are going to be really complex, mm-hmm. but the more everyone just helps each other out, keep collaborating virtually to figure it out, you know, we're, we'll, we'll be fine. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I remain optimistic. <laughs> All right. Um, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Daniel. I highly appreciate your answers. Thank you so much. Fortunately, Daniel was able to come back to talk about Curvecrete, its present and future, and how they would like to change the construction industry. Welcome oh. back, Daniel. Thank you so much again for your presence at the podcast. Last time we left off with Curvecrete. Would you be so kind to describe us what is Curvecrete? Yeah, Curvecrete is the advanced manufacturer and robotics development company. It's a newly established company in Melbourne and really based on the core technology that enables the creation of curved concrete panels in a more cost-effective and waste-free manner using fit-for-purpose robotics. Robotic system that is reconfigurable, completely reusable, that can create a variety of bespoke uh, curved concrete shapes, yeah, without producing any of the waste because of its reusability. That sounds amazing. Why did you start Curvecrete? Okay, so this company is conceived originally through a real passion for trying to improve architecture and integrate architecture and engineering. Here's my background as an architectural engineer and looking for ways in which we can build more efficiently, more effectively, and create something really exciting. Uh, advanced manufacturing is a really key technology to enable that. And the, you know, this, this was an opportunity that came up originally at University of Melbourne with two other researchers, Paul Lowe and, and David Leggett. Where it all began, they had come up with an idea to produce curved shapes using ruled surfaces, which was really inspired from from Gaudi and mm-hmm. uh, some of Mark Barry's work on the Sagrada Familia. And yeah, from there they came up with prototype, brought me in a little while after that to come up with commercial viable prototype for the machine. Since then, I've been working to unlock all of the potential value in that system in order to further enable designers to realize their their curved, ambitious architecture. Now, Curvecrete is a fully established company. It's growing. It's Mm -hmm. got three full-time employees along with myself and uh, Warren, co-founders that we, we established company with. Now, we're actually looking to expand the team even more to expand uh, mechatronics engineering, um, robotics assembly processes, and expand the team for panel production as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are you working on now? What is Curvecrete's present achievements? And why do mm-hmm. you need to expand the team? Or what are mm-hmm. the plans for the growing company? Yeah, so I guess that alludes to our company being a scalable company. So having out that the ambitious goals that, that we have uh, aligning with you know accelerating the transition to low carbon construction but in an exciting way so we can build more of a movement and remove any of the stigma around you know low carbon material use or sustainable 
materials and sustainable construction being something that is not cost effective and something that is seen as risky. We want to show that we can actually build really exciting things, um, curvy things, uh, that are lower carbon, zero waste, and also cost effective. So that's something that we're really focusing on, and uh, we're building a team around building that capability. And so we take, let's say we take like two main trajectories for that. So uh, one is we're building uh, building up that skill set, building a team around our ability to actually innovate in the robotic space, develop robotic systems, uh, but also manufacture them for scale, for scaled manufacture. So trying to do that all here in, in Melbourne. So any robotic system that we need to adapt or make more efficient or, or something, we can do it ourselves without too much reliability on overseas market or um, limited high-skilled labor. So we just have all that in-house. The reason for that is that in order to innovate within advanced manufacturing for construction, you really need to be developing fit-for-purpose robotic systems to unlock all of that efficiency in the system. There's this no off-the-shelf system uh, that that is good purpose. <laughs> That's like the, the opposite. Um, you, you can't just get a robotic arm and expect to have a, a super efficient process. There's a lot of work that, that would go into programming it correctly. It's a tool that's more suitably used in clean environments, in factory environments, for repetitive tasks, whereas construction is messy, typically not repetitive, <laughs> and typically on-site, where it's not necessarily always in factory. So really, I think fit-for-purpose robotics and developing those systems, implementing them so that they're really cost-effective to make and operate, then that's really going to push the industry forward towards making construction more efficient and with that key focus with being low carbon. Yeah, that, that was like one trajectory on the robotics development side. And the other one is also on the um, implementing the materials, uh, low carbon materials use that works with the advanced manufacturing technique. So currently in that trajectory, we work quite closely with researchers, particularly from Swinburne University, um, out of the Digital Construction Laboratory to learn about geopolymer materials. Now we've developed our mixed designs for geopolymer that are equivalent strengths to standard Portland cement, but they are somewhere between 80 and 90% less carbon emitting. So it's, it's really significant. Now, this mixed design that we have, we've developed with basalt fiber reinforced reinforcement and we've just been just tested the non-combustibility characteristics of the material Mm -hmm. and we've received the report back to say that it is all clear so it's now an as 1530.1 compliant material which being a type of concrete mineral based material, it should pass with flying colors, which is which is what it did. But it's um, long time coming because it, it is an expensive process and, and mm-hmm. one that really got enabled through um, our uh, latest investment round and, and um, government grant opportunity through the acceleration commercialization grant. Our goals for that 
two other goals that I'll just slap on the ends here. Uh, you know, with the acceleration commercialization grant, we have two key goals. One is to complete our first project or projects, plural, and establish a state-of-the-art manufacturing facility in Victoria. Wow. Yeah. So there's more announcements to come with that as well. <laughs> yeah. Very exciting. I'm sure we'll have the time to discuss too. So robotics and materials, basically these are the building stones for Curvecrete. Mm-hmm. Basically, you want to change the whole construction industry. Am I getting this right? Not completely change it. There's like 90% of the construction industry is all built on relationships and trusting one another to you know deliver on a project. All of that is part of the, the beauty and the chaos of, of construction. <laughs> it, it's it's very difficult to make that process more efficient. I just mm-hmm. put my engineering lens on it, but mm-hmm. uh, you can't really do that. Uh, yeah, there are ways to do it. We, we can get into that a little bit later, but um, uh, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. That's fine. <laughs> we will get back to how to change the construction industry. Yeah. Yeah. So, sorry, it, the, the question puts me off because it's um, it always makes me think of all of those cliches. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, we're going to change the industry. It's <laughs> we're probably looking to change like 10% of it or 20% of it or something. But it's a significant portion because that's the real how you deliver on the project in the building phase and how you streamline the design to construction phase. But once you've established all of those relationships and built that network of trust with the people that you're working with, that portion that comes afterwards is what really can make much more efficient. And that's what builds on those relationships as well, right? Yeah, the thing that we're focusing on is basically unlocking all of the unrealized potential in low-carbon materials through advanced manufacturing. So what that means is using our completely reusable robotic formwork um, that can create a multitude of curved forms over and over again in a repeatable fashion. It's repeatable in accuracy tolerances, within construction tolerances, sub three millimeter tolerances, um, virtually achieving sub 1.5 mil. Reconfigurable in nature is that we're doing mass customization you can create any curved form um, that you like as long as you panelize it in quadrilateral panels, which we have designed software to help with. Mm-hmm. The curved panels, they're structurally more efficient than flat panels. Um, so they're 10 times like order of magnitude stiffer than wow. flat panels, even with a subtle curvature. So even with a subtle like 20 meter radius curvature, they can increase in stiffness by factor of 10 uh, from the arching action that it creates. The geopolymer material is actually more stable um, when it's exposed to fire than standard concrete. Wow. This is due to two things. Um, We don't use large aggregates that expand at a different rate when it's exposed to thermal stress to the cement matrix. So that avoids any sort of spalling risk that can occur. So spalling is like the chipping away of concrete Mm -hmm. from fire. And then the geopolymer itself between 400 and 600 degrees, um, it actually vitrifies, so it sort of acts like glass, where it crystallizes itself into a form and actually becomes um, stronger. Mm-hmm. So it could go up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is how you, like, step by step, each little portion of those 
innovations to the material or the process, you know, will lead to more efficiencies and more cost efficiencies that, that can push the industry more towards using low-carbon materials. So that's really the goal to disrupt the industry. Well, not necessarily disrupt it, but just help it transition to low-carbon construction. You mentioned that you estimate that this kind of change is only affecting 10 or 20% of the construction industry. Mm. For me, it sounds way more. Why do you say that it's such a small amount? Mm. I'm thinking about the technology by itself and not the business model. So if we think about the business model more, like it could actually affect 100% of it mm-hmm. through creating verticals from raw material to completed development, which is yeah, long-term ambition, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to to really change the construction industry, or at least you know, hundred percent of it for a few projects, you know, large projects, and the construction industry is huge, right? There's so many different players in it, and it really does take the construction industry as it is currently to change itself. It's not going to take just just one company to disrupt it. It takes a um, like everyone involved in the construction industry to actually contribute to that change. Uh, that, that's why I, I, I feel like just saying like 10, 20% because there's so many people involved and they're all doing some like really great work and it's really stressful work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really hard for construction industry, even though some elements quite good, like there's a lot of demand and there's a lot of huge infrastructure projects. So there's a lot of job stability and that sort of thing. But the doing the work itself, uh, it's very, you know, you've got to keep to schedule, but it's very complex work that you have to complete to schedule. So it's very, very hard to keep things on track and you're dealing with big budgets that uh, just create a lot of stress. So mm-hmm. I'm just conscious of that. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's, it's reasonable yeah, to say that technology can only solve a portion of that mm-hmm. uh, because it is such a complex industry. But if we look at it from the business side of things and that sort of strategic side of things, if you start to partner or create verticals within a company that call it like the construction stack, if you like, mm-hmm. you know, raw material down the bottom, development up the top, mm-hmm. what are the steps in between, what are the skills that you require within your company? What are the you know insurances, compliance capabilities that you need within that vertical stack in order to build it out? And you know, we've we've kind of started experimenting with that a bit. So currently, we uh, get our raw materials direct from the supplier of those raw materials. Um, we batch them ourselves, so mm-hmm. we're mixing and matching materials and uh, able to experiment in that way. But yeah, we, we take that on. Our first project is a full design to construct project mm-hmm. and we're working directly with a client. And yeah, in order to do that full design to construct, we've, we're working with one of our advisors 
Stephen Richardson, who's a um, licensed commercial builder. We're working under him, utilizing his um, commercial building license under his supervision. Mm -hmm. So we've basically become a, a licensed builder. We've partnered with structural engineering firms, so, but we work very closely with them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're getting to know our system really well, so they're able to you know, have a lot of confidence in what we're doing, and they're, they're quite confident in signing off our projects mm. uh, for us even though they are quite complex but they're quite exciting and, and interesting to solve so mm -hmm. it's quite a good challenge for them so we can bring all that more or less in-house like offer it as a service at least um, mm -hmm. that we're subcontracting out and then as you climb up that vertical stack there's other things that come up other compliance issues that we wouldn't take on in-house like that are once-off things like fire engineering you know, non-combustibility compliance which we have now architecture specifications mm -hmm. um, so we have an in-house architect now uh, Alicia she's, was the registered architect in Spain and mm -hmm. um, now she's here in Australia and going to she's, she's looking to re-register soon in Australia as well and then what else do we need <laughs> need to yeah, maybe take on the planning process, like town planning, that's sort the of thing which we could do if we wanted to. And, and then you get more towards the development stage, mm -hmm. thinking about do we commission our own projects mm -hmm. in the future and do it to improve the community in that location to you know, create something really exciting for those people to live in wherever it is and doing it in the most cost-effective way from raw material to development. Very small goals, but admirables. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that one of the existing situations that you need to work with the connections and the links among the players in the construction industry. Is it easier to have and try Curve Crete in Australia, or would it be easier outside of Australia? We've thought about it a little bit. We we have connections and opportunities in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. um, so we have had opportunities in Japan to build in Japan, had opportunities to build in the US, in LA, mm -hmm. you know, which I think would seriously give a push in the next few years, mm -hmm. um, particularly in Texas, for instance. Mm -hmm. A lot of building happening there because uh, all the Silicon Valley is basically moving there. Yeah, we've got opportunities to work in China, but uh, given the current climate, it's becoming quite evident that it's quite good to focus on Australia right now because of the current economic climate and the shipping challenges during COVID. So yeah, overseas manufacturing is not the first choice for construction at this moment because it's unstable. Mm -hmm. Don't know how to guarantee the supply of those components that are going to be installed on our buildings here. Along with that, there's you know, contractual requirement for public works to use local suppliers, local jobs first, you know, policies that are in place there. Mm -hmm. So that's quite advantageous for us, of course, but it's only for the public work sector or like really large private sector work, which, uh, yeah, we're, we're open to obviously take on in, in saying that there's really large project opportunities that are out there that you know, we could scale up very quickly to absorb. That's one real huge advantage of advanced manufacturing and the pr approach that we've taken. So we've got a resilient approach to scaling our robotics manufacturing to, uh, capabilities and really quickly to you know, absorb that demand, right? Uh, locally, 
in, in a cost-effective way. So there's a number of things that align with that. The cost of manufacturing our machine is you know, basically order magnitude less or even greater, actually, than the next equivalent system on the market. Wow. You know, we can manufacture it all ourselves you know, by a few components that um, we're not manufacturing at this stage, like you know, um, motors and actuators and things. But mm-hmm. other than that, everything else is manufactured in-house. So it's very quick to accelerate the panel manufacturing rates. So mm-hmm. they're at a rate of about three panels per day per machine, about three-hour setting demold times, which is fairly significant, especially for a low-carbon material. And we're working on ways to accelerate that even more. But yeah, at that rate, we could, you know, with 10 machines, we could have 30 panels per day. You know, if we wanted to produce a home, yeah, maybe we could do that in a few days with that many machines. It could be quite quick. That sounds fascinating. And really good what you are what you are trying to do would you be able to tell us a little bit more about your first projects you mentioned mm-hmm. that now you are in one of your first projects mm-hmm. yeah so our first project well yeah like a, it's a pilot project i guess and it's one that's going to prove out technology in commercial space yeah basically a spiral staircase that takes you up from level 14 to the rooftop of the building that I'm currently in, which is in Flinders Street. The building's called Flinders Towers, and it's, it's one of those buildings that was built in the noughties, so like 2003-04, it was complete. And it's like a sore thumb sort of building of Melbourne, <laughs> but the owners of the building are so proud of it and really trying to improve the state of it. So. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible team that they have here in the body corporate that we work with as as the client, especially um, Rob Helsall and the others on the committee, Bruno and Daryl and the others. These people have become really, really good mates, actually, through this process. And um, I happen to be an owner of the building as well. So I have an apartment that's where I'm standing right now. It was quite serendipitous the way that the project came up. The chairman of the body corps, Rob, he gave me a call one day, late 2020, and was asking the owners about um, upgrading fob tags for the building mm-hmm. security. It's like, uh, you know, going to organize a fob tag, going to drop it off to you, blah, blah, yeah, organize that. Okay. And then it's like, by the way, we're um, looking to develop the rooftop you know, for a communal space for a building residents. Um, would you be interested in supporting that as an owner. I was like, um, yeah, but, but I'll design it for you. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, we'd uh, prefer to, you know, give it to the owners because, you know, it becomes so much more dedicated to the project. Mm-hmm. It means something to you and the owners. And um, we'd definitely be looking at that uh, mm-hmm. first. So if you can get you know, fee proposal in, we've got an AGM in, in five days. Can you get it to us before then? Hmm. Uh, so, uh, yep. Okay. <laughs> um, so threw, threw something together. It's a bit of um, scope of what we could do and uh, got approved within five days to wow. uh, go ahead. So we, we didn't have to come up with a design in five days. It was like, that mm-hmm. was, um, that was next. So it's really, I guess, one of my first babies that um, yeah, worked on this project from the very start to almost the very end, which is really special. So, yeah. Exciting. Um, 
Yeah, really exciting. So to, to describe it a little bit more, it's, you know, this building really needs uh, revitalization after COVID. There's a lot of tenancy uh, issues. So there's a lot of stress from a lot of the owners here and they just need something to pick them up mm-hmm. after COVID. Mm-hmm. So opening up the rooftop was um, a huge project um, to do that. It's mm-hmm. one of the more positive ones, apart from all the other maintenance efforts that the, the committee is making for the building mm-hmm. with all their new fire systems, security systems, etc. But uh, yeah, this is one to, to really put the uh, crown on the, the top mm-hmm. of the building. Looks a little bit like a crown, to be honest. So I think it'll really uh, uplift the, the spirits of the building, mm-hmm. especially coming out of covid you are so hopeful coming out of COVID. Do you? Well, COVID will still be here. It's just we will come out with COVID. Yeah. <laughs> Having a great time. We're just stuck inside. Yeah. You mentioned a lot of things. What would you like to achieve with disruption, but with a solution? Introducing robotics and materials, the better layers of the construction industry with starting from the materials. What else would you like to achieve with Curvecrete? Yeah, good question. I always hesitate with these these sort of questions because um, I was trying to like build up the ability to like just be a little bit vulnerable with what your ambitions are, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's just me thinking through that. <laughs> uh, but, Daniel, um, Daniel, Daniel, if you have a better question, please say no, no, that no. and then you can answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's good. Yeah, because, um, you know, that there's something really special that, that comes next in terms of our capabilities when we go down this road of, of developing custom or, you know, fit for purpose robotic systems for particularly like solving sustainability issues because you're using materials that not necessarily everyone would think to use, but they're always local. So it's like using local materials in a different way. And when you go through that process, you learn so much. You're learning about material science and chemistry. To figuring out how how these materials work from a very fundamental level, mm-hmm. and because we build up that knowledge about material, because mm-hmm. we build up that capability of fit for robotics, and because we are dealing with local materials, that all leads to capability to build anywhere. So, you know, it could be that we progress to building structures in remote locations around the earth. Mm-hmm. Could be that we build structures on the moon. It could be that we build structures in Mars. Mm-hmm. And I think um, the real high-level goal of Curvecrete and what we're building here is currently really accelerating the transition to low-carbon materials and zero-waste construction in a really exciting way. Mm-hmm. Build this this momentum right for that. But what comes next after that, naturally, is that we can build anywhere. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see see where the future takes us once once we uh, really scale up. That's really really exciting, and it is really invigorating to just see your progress and just your thinking about how far you can go with Curvecrete and. Congratulations on the achievements until now. And I'm very excited about <laughs> the future yeah, ones. <laughs> I don't think I even mentioned that we have one more announcement. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
I mean, yeah, actually, I, I haven't even yeah, referenced the other thing, but one thing is uh, we have moved into our new facility in West Footscray. So we have, <laughs> thank you. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. So we have our own dedicated facility. It's over 400 square meters wow. in size. Mm-hmm. We are building out that state-of-the-art manufacturing facility that we were speaking about a little bit earlier from the Acceleration Commercialization Grant. And mm-hmm. um, so that's well underway. We're fitting it out as we speak. And um, yeah, we've got a lot planned there. We have a whole series of manufacturing kits in order to help us not only manufacture robotic systems, but also expand our capabilities in manufacturing other building components and other you know, processes for that, make our robotic systems you know, operate at higher levels of automation and yeah, basically streamline our, our production processes so that we can deliver on more low-carbon low uh, construction. Separately. That's awesome. <laughs> That's really good. I'm so yeah. happy for you. That's really good. I'm out yeah. of questions. thing? Yeah, I, did, I didn't uh, mention the, what, what I wanted to mention, but it got quite complex, was at the, you know, when, when you asked about, you know, the 10 to 20% of construction versus yeah, yeah. relationship, like technology versus human influence, the human influence side, you know, big movement to accelerate the use of low carbon materials is the MECLA program, um, mm-hmm. as well as government program mm-hmm. uh, that we covered in the, the previous session i think mm-hmm. and um yeah that that's a really big step forward for the industry in terms of like building those relationships deciding on the direction that the construction industry really needs to go from a very high level all the way from the top from mm-hmm. the government to mandate the processes involved in specifying low carbon materials mm-hmm. and specifying how we specify mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so that um, low-carbon materials can be included to um, accelerate that, that transition. So, Carefree, we don't not just you know, focus on the technology, we focus on relationships and how to influence policies in order to make all this happen for everyone. We, we have to move to a low-carbon future. So, yeah, and you are ta- providing the solution. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> That's really good. Do you have any closing comments for the audience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, check us out at curvecrete.com. Get in touch. You can get in touch with me directly, if you like, mm-hmm. at daniel at curvecrete.com. We are on LinkedIn and Instagram with mm-hmm. as Curvecrete. And um, yeah, reach out if you have a curvy project that you want to realize. If you are someone interested in robotics, interested in construction or frustrated with current construction practice, get in touch with us. We're, we're looking to expand the team all the time. So um, we're happy to chat to you. If you are a property developer or builder, do get in touch to yeah, learn about how we can streamline that design and production process for you. Perfect way to end. <laughs> Daniel's interest and role in reducing pollution at better resource management seems to be a really promising one, not to mention his positive attitude to approaching everything critically instead of accepting it without a doubt. You can find more about Daniel Curvecrete and his other experiences online. All the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Daniel's approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF for Cities or on the website where the transcripts and show notes are available. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in.
what is the future for cities podcast.